0: Business
1: News Power Hour. Well, a warm welcome to you on this, the 14th of December, Tuesday, the 14th of December, the second last edition of the Biz News Power Hour for the year. And what a year it's been! We'll be talking with Stephen Nathan, our regular man, on a Tuesday to look back on his year—quite extraordinary. Just over a year ago, Stephen Nathan was the chief executive of Tenex, the company that he founded. Uh, he went into the end of the year no longer in that position. He's been on gardening leave for a year, but it's not quite what it sounds like. He's done uh, some very interesting things, and he shares that with us. And looks ahead to. What he believes will be a far better 2022, and explains the reasons why. Uh, we'll also be hearing about some very, very good news, and that's to do with the red list of which South Africa has been removed. It's been confirmed uh, by our UK correspondent Linda von Tilburg who happens to be in South Africa at the moment. She came out a few weeks ago and hasn't been able to get back to the UK, but it has been confirmed that South Africa will be removed from the red list in the early hours of tomorrow morning. So that's good news. And what does it mean for our tourism sector? Is it too late, perhaps? Well, uh, let's hope not. Linda will also uh, be talking a little with me about her next adventure, which is to cover the World Economic Forum in Davos, of course, for news. And that will be in... uh, January the 17th to the 21st, Linda was at the last World Economic Forum meeting for us. That was two years ago. There was no meeting last year. And this one seems to have been put together in a a bit of a hurry. But even so, she's going to be there and lots of other interesting people, no doubt. In fact, uh, as you'll hear from the conversation with Linda, that was where I got to spot Joe Biden for the first time. And though he's got quite a bad press and a lot of people in America are not that mad about him, I found him incredibly impressive. I really did like what I saw in in a humble, centered, uh, reflective uh, human being. He is now the president, of course, so I wonder if he's going to be making the trip back again this year. Also coming up in the program tonight, Discovery put together a uh, webinar where it unpacked its findings on tens of thousands of people who have been infected with Omicron. We're very fortunate to have the data that Discovery can compile for us. As it is, on the one hand, the market leader in health insurance in South Africa, it has access to lots of information. But on the other hand, for some years now, Discovery has been investing heavily in big data. In other words, crunching the numbers. So, Of most countries in the world, we are extremely well positioned to understand exactly what's going on with COVID-19, thanks to the information that Discovery can give us. And there is some very interesting news about Omicron or Omicron to come out of the Discovery data. Uh, Today, we'll be giving you some insights on that too. And then uh, to close off the program tonight, we're going to share a little bit about the BizNews Share Portfolio update today, having a look at some of the major themes that are going on in the investing world at the moment. The big one, of course, is inflation versus deflation. Uh, I'll play you a little clip from the webinar, which was held at noontime today. Before we get to any of that, let's pick up on the news headlines with my colleague, Nadia Swart. BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, Nadia, this is our second last business Power Hour of the year, Wednesday being The final one, tomorrow, the final one, because Thursday is a public holiday and we're off for a couple of weeks thereafter, coming back on the 10th of January. I hope you've got great stuff planned.
2: Oh, goodness me. Well, I'm just like reveling in the fact that I completely forgot that Thursday is a public holiday. This is awesome. Love it when that happens. But yes, I do have amazing plans. Family time. Always that December is family time.
1: Before we get anywhere close to that, you can tell us what's in the news headlines.
2: So leading scientists have stated that the extent of natural immunity against the coronavirus infection in South Africa's population due to earlier infections may be mitigating the severity of the illness caused by Omicron variant. Since the discovery of the variant in South Africa and Botswana was announced on November the 25th, hospitalization rates in South Africa have risen, though at a much slower pace than in previous waves, even as cases are rising more rapidly. The number of deaths has also been lower. A recent seroprevalence survey in Gauteng, where the Omicron variant was first identified, showed that 72% of the population have previously been infected with the coronavirus. This is according to Shabir Mahdi, a vaccinologist at Wits University. These findings provide further evidence of the protection afforded by infection-induced immunity. And The city of Chuan will be run by a majority coalition government with 109 seats in the council, ensuring what will likely be a stable government for the metro. On Tuesday, Chwane Mayor Randall Williams announced his mayoral committee after weeks of coalition negotiations between the DA and other political parties. The DA has run the city through an unstable coalition government since 2016, with its reliance on the EFF having frustrated the governments. But Williams said his administration was starting with a majority coalition for the first time. The agreement comprises six parties – Action SA, the DA, COPE, the Freedom Front Plus, and the ACDP. The combined support means the DA has a majority backing of 109 seats in the council, which is enough to meet the 50% plus one requirement. An SA-born billionaire Elon Musk has been named Time Magazine's Person of the Year, capping a run during which the head of Tesla solidified his standing as the world's richest person and turned his one-time electric vehicle startup into a $1 trillion company. Time explained its choice of the groundbreaking and often controversial executive, saying few individuals have had more influence than Musk on life on Earth and potentially life off Earth, too. He sees his mission as solving the globe's most intractable challenges along the way disrupting multiple industries. The accolade, which is often reserved for world leaders such as Barack Obama, adds another trophy to Musk's increasingly full case. And as my colleague Justin Rowe-Roberts is not with us today... Here is the market report. The JSE All-Share Index is up at 71,700 points. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies: 16 rand 04 to the dollar, 21 rand 26 to the pound, 18 rand 16 to the euro. Gold is up at $1,784 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 30,000 rand. Brent crude is trading at $75 a barrel and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back r rand per coin. In the financial news, chemicals and energy group SASL cut its production guidance for Secunda for the second time in two months, this time due to a litany of internal and external issues, including rain and mining incidents. Secunda is expected to produce 6.7 million to 6.8 million tons for the group's 2022 year a fall of about 8% amid poor coal quality and availability for the synthetic fuel plant. In October, the group trimmed its guidance by about 1.3% from as much as 7.5 million tonnes, citing unexpected delays during the September shutdown, poor coal quality and erratic power supply from ESCOM. Sasol said on Tuesday it has since experienced operational incidents at its coal mines, including a fire at its Shondani mine, as well as a high-wall failure, at its Seyfried Fontaine mine, both of which had no fatalities. An underground water reservoir incident at its Bossier Plate mine resulted in three fatalities.
1: This Daily Market Report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
3: Today is Tuesday, December 14th, and this is your FT News Briefing. U.S. labor officials are investigating whether Apple broke the law by retaliating against a whistleblower, and there could be a new hurdle for Russia's Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Plus, we have an inside view of J.P. Morgan, and it's not pretty. Our banking editor has the story of infighting among powerful financiers over a famous athlete's fortune.
0: It's very rare that you see a dispute like this take place in public as this one is. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need
3: The FT reports that Apple is under investigation by U.S. labor officials. They're looking into claims that the technology giant retaliated against an employee who publicly accused Apple of a variety of workplace violations. A senior engineering program manager had been tweeting allegations of harassment, surveillance, and work safety issues. Apple fired her in September, allegedly for leaking confidential information. She said that she was dismissed under false pretext. An employment lawyer told the FT that these investigations are rare because of the use of non-disclosure agreements, and it's also rare for these disputes to be made public. It's... Also rare for employee battles inside a U.S. banking titan to be made public, but a spat inside J.P. Morgan Chase broke open after a top financial advisor filed for a restraining order against the bank to restrict her co-workers from engaging with her clients. The financial advisor in question manages the fortune of one of the most famous baseball personalities of all time, former Yankee slugger Alex Rodriguez, or A-Rod. Her U.S. banking editor, Josh Franklin, joins me to talk more. Hey, Josh. Hey, Mark. So Josh, at the center of this dispute is a woman named Gwen Campbell. She's A-Rod's financial advisor, and she's the one who manages his multi-million dollar fortune. She was at Merrill Lynch about a year ago, and then J.P. Morgan lured her over. And Josh, why don't you take take it from here?
0: What happened really was uh, Gwen Campbell was a very high profile financial advisor at Merrill Lynch with about $1.1 billion in client assets. J.P. Morgan was very keen to get her over to their bank uh, but J.P. Morgan has this slightly complicated dynamic where you have two separate businesses that do similar things. You have J.P. Morgan's private bank, which sits within its asset and wealth management division. And then you have J.P. Morgan Advisors, which sits within a separate J.P. Morgan wealth management business. And they are under separate leadership. And Gwen Campbell was joining the J.P. Morgan Advisor business. But what happened once she moved over and brought her clients with her is that the private bank began soliciting her clients and she argued that this is in violation of her contract when she joined J.P. Morgan and is now filing for a restraining order against J.P. Morgan to stop her colleagues from doing this. All the while, she's also pursuing legal damages against J.P. Morgan.
3: Obviously, not a great look for the bank. Um, So is this situation unique or is it part of a broader cultural issue at J.P. Morgan?
0: Well, so in her legal filing requesting the temporary restraining order, Gwen Campbell argues that it is a pattern of behavior that's taken place for years. And certainly some of my own reporting does suggest that the relationship between J.P. Morgan Advisors and J.P. Morgan's private bank is not harmonious. I've had people tell me that it feels like you're working for two separate businesses. There's very little integration between the two sides. There is also collaboration, but certainly um, there is a lot of tension that exists uh, when you're going after similar clients and you have different business lines doing this.
3: So Josh, why is this an issue at JP Morgan? Is there something unique about the bank that, that creates this?
0: It's interesting. It's part of it is just kind of the flaw of the big bank model. And with JP Morgan, you know, it's a, it's a bank that is the product of multiple mergers over many decades. So this is JP Morgan Chase as it exists today is several different banks kind of stitched together. And what's making this particularly acute right now for JP Morgan is really this structure where you've got these competing businesses inside the same bank goes back to the Bear Stearns acquisition that people might remember JP Morgan made in 2008 during the financial crisis. It was a, it was really a shotgun acquisition for JP Morgan. They helped bail out Bear Stearns. And this kind of brought inside the bank a business that was kind of competing with a business that JP Morgan already had. And here we are 13 years later, and it's still never been fully integrated into JP Morgan. So you've kind of got this odd situation inside. But you know, JP Morgan isn't the only US bank to have gone through mergers.
3: How come this isn't a problem at other Wall Street firms? Or or is it a problem at other banks?
0: Yeah. So interestingly, it, it, you're quite right. It's not just a problem that exists at, at J.P. Morgan. If you look at someone like Bank of America, which also had another kind of rushed M&A transaction during the crisis when it bought Merrill Lynch, you know, has a similar dynamic where it has a private bank. And then within Bank of America, it also has Merrill Lynch, which uh, it's a similar dynamic as, as J.P. Morgan has. Interestingly, Gwen Campbell, you know, she, from that point of view, should be familiar with this kind of dynamic she came from Merrill Lynch, where she was that for, for a number of years and built up her business there. So, is, you know, has experience navigating these kind of conflicts. Uh, but it seems like whatever's going on at J.P. Morgan for her seems particularly difficult.
3: So this saga over A-Rod's millions, you know, let's go back to that for a
0: second. How does it all end? So for JP Morgan and Gwen Campbell now, the end game is going to be arbitration. Uh, Gwen Campbell last week filed for arbitration proceedings against JP Morgan to sort this out through, through mediation. And that would give her, presumably, if she wins, some kind of financial um, compensation. She argues, though, that this situation can't just be remedied through financial compensation. That's why she's seeking the restraining order. She feels like this is damaging her credibility in the industry and can cause irreparable harm to her, um, her reputation. So that's something also that simultaneously is going to work its way through the courts. Joshua Franklin is our U.S. banking editor. Thank you, Josh. Thanks very much, Mark. <laughs>
3: Germany's foreign minister may have jolted energy markets yesterday. European gas futures jumped 11% after Annalena Baerbock, also leader of Germany's Green Party, said the Nord Stream 2 pipeline couldn't go ahead as planned because it doesn't comply with EU law. Nord Stream 2 is owned by Russian energy company Gazprom. It's been built to pipe gas from Russia into Germany under the Baltic Sea. Now, this is just the latest delay. Last month, Germany threw up a bureaucratic hurdle. Now, a new coalition government in Berlin has other reasons to block it as well. Here's the FT's Berlin bureau chief, Guy Chazan. The main problem is that you now have a party in the government, the Greens, who have always been opposed to Nordstrom 2 and really have said, and they campaigned on a promise basically to block it, And they now are incredibly powerful and influential in the government. They control the foreign ministry and also the economics ministry. So it's going to be difficult for them to just wave this through, uh, regardless of the um, situation in Europe with uh, rising energy prices and uh, scarcity of gas. That's the FT's Berlin bureau chief, Guy Chazan. Before we go, Harley-Davidson motorcycles are famously loud, but in the past few years, it's been making motorcycles that sound more like this. That's a Harley-Davidson electric motorcycle, and the company is now spinning off this part of the business. Harley plans to list its electric motorcycle unit on the stock market through a merger with a blank check company known as a SPAC. These financial vehicles have been popular for EV startups who want to raise cash on public markets, but Harley could face some potholes. The investor frenzy over SPACs has cooled, and so has their eagerness to plow money into shares of electric vehicle startups. You can read more on all of these stories at ft.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
1: Stephen, Nathan, it's our last chat of the year. In fact, uh, tomorrow is the final broadcast of the Business Power Hour. It's only right. You know, we all have to have a holiday sometime. Uh, looking back on this year, Stephen, it's been an extraordinary year for many people but for yourself what have you been up to i think did you start the year as the ceo of 10x
4: well i actually um uh left 10x at the end of last year so given that it was the kind of the christmas break i'm not exactly sure myself whether it was in december or in january uh but effective uh yeah 31 december uh 2020 i was no longer involved in 10x uh uh, in any capacity
1: So you've been on gardening leave for the whole of 2021, which is really—I know you have moved house, uh, but have you done a lot of reading? Have have you applied your your, this time?
4: Yeah, I have. I have done a lot of reading. I think you know what's interesting is that when you've got a lot of time, uh, you've got to be careful that you don't waste it. Um, You know, part of me wanted to to do the kind of—I guess—things that I would previously think of as frivolous. You know taking my kids to maybe the afternoon, uh, uh, extramural activity, uh, you know, doing those kind of things where, you know, when you're sort of busy, uh, in business, uh, you kind of, uh, put a, you, you almost put a value on your time and you kind of go, well, you know, should I really be, you know, doing something that's quite frivolous or perceived to be frivolous? Uh, but really I think that, uh, if you have the opportunity of spending time with, uh, Certainly, with your children, your family, uh, and doing those kind of things, and being there for other people. So that was quite a big adjustment uh, to actually kind of say, well, you know, just be yourself, uh, and uh, you know, spend time with loved ones, doing things. As I say, that uh, you know, that I that I haven't done in the last you know 25 years. Um, and then and then with the other, you know, with the rest of the time, uh, you know, there I think uh, that comment I made where you've got to be careful uh, that you don't waste it. You know, there's that 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 saying: if you want something done, give it to the busiest person you know. <laughs> and there's a reason because they, you know, they're very well disciplined and structured. Uh, so I think I did fall a little bit into the trap where I probably wasn't as productive as I should have been. Uh, but uh, but I've done a lot of reading, uh, and I've also been engaging with a lot of people. You know, when I was at TenX, as an example, you know, we 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 were very much a direct-to-consumer business, and we weren't sort of engaging much with the uh, in, independent financial advisor community and what i've been doing this year is actually engaging a lot with the independent financial advisors and initially i thought i would get a bit of a hostile reception uh, you know 10x be more of a direct model uh, and uh you know highlighting uh, some of what we believe is the, the the poor practices within the financial services industry uh, not that financial advice per se is a poor practice but a lot of the upfront commissions and you know the heavy selling the 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 kind of selling rather than advising and rather than acting in the client's best interests. But very pleasantly, uh, the reception I got from the vast majority of the IFA community was really positive, and that you know that's encouraged me because I think that uh, you know financial advisors also recognise that a lot of the products and the fee structures and the complexity, you know, is not in their clients' best interests. But they can only sell what the big companies are providing and supporting them. Uh, so I think that's quite an interesting opportunity for that. So I've been doing a lot of that. I've, I've also more recently uh, tried to understand a bit of the blockchain environment, uh, which is quite, quite fascinating. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, it's kind of one of those where I'm a bit of a purist and you, you know, you start off and you're saying, no, this is all nonsense, but you don't really know that much about it. And the more you learn about it and you understand the underlying technology and its capability, it really is a fascinating world. So there's, you know, there's more than enough to keep me busy.
1: Mm, blockchain is interesting are you in the nuru Rubini school which says it's all a lot of bunk and a great fraud or well particularly he talks in that way about bitcoin not necessarily the blockchain or is there is are you in the pitfallion field which says you should have at least something in your portfolio because one doesn't know where it's going
4: Yeah, so i think that uh um you know i I think that the the underlying uh, technology has incredible potential and you know um they talk about sort of this is sort of web 3.0 so you know the web 1.0 was sort of the the, the 19 uh, the 1999 period 95 to 2000 sort of boom where you know the internet sort of came came onto the scene um with a lot of hype and, and too much hype um and you know there was there was probably you know I don't know, maybe there's 50 or 100 really great companies that uh, that came that were built in that era. Um, but there was probably, you know, 10 times or 50 times that amount that actually failed. Uh, so there was a lot of hype and there was a lot of failure. Um, but certainly the hype was not misplaced. It was just the maturity of it and which business models and companies are going to succeed. Uh, you know, and then we saw the Web 2.0 where, you know, what. They kind of referred to as the platform companies or the networking companies, the Googles, uh, the Amazons to an extent are networking, you know, the effect of their their global scale and networking capabilities. Uh, obviously we've got Facebook, uh, you know, so, so those companies, uh, dominated the web 2.0 and then the web 3.0, you know, the big thing as I understand it about sort of, and, and people use crypto and blockchain inter- interchangeably. And I think. Uh, the crypto has probably got a bad name uh, because it seemed to be speculation and blockchain underlying technology. You know, um, the big thing there uh, is around decentralizing of, of, of this technology so that no one owns the technology. So you don't have sort of a winner takes all, you know, where you, where you might have, let's say it's a um, a Google that takes all. And there's examples of Spotify as an example where um, there was something on Spotify where, uh, most of the musicians are earning less than one hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, so the vast majority of the spoils of of, of sort of Spotify is going to the uh, the owners, the shareholders of Spotify, and they would look to de- decentralize that and say, "Well, you know let's let's give the musicians uh, the people that are contributing to it a much greater share of this and that also falls into sort of the sharing economy uh, and I think I think there's an enormous amount of uh, potential. You know, within within blockchain, uh, within the blockchain technology, but it's going to be like the internet, where there are a few winners, there are many losers. There's going to be fraudulent activity, and you know, there's already been fraudulent activity, uh, kind of in crypto and wallets being stolen and hacked. And, uh, you know, and unfortunately, that's not the technology per se; that's human nature. You know, we saw that in uh, in the technology boom. I, know I was an investment banker in those days. You know, and there was there was a lot of rubbish companies quite frankly that were being promoted by very prestigious investment banks and and the corporate financiers and analysts knew they were rubbish Uh, and they were you know we even knew it was happened during the time uh but they still did it so it's not you know it's not as though this sort of fraudulent activity uh is reserved to crypto it's i think it's human nature so i think it's an enormously successful how you play it is very difficult because you know there's i'm not sure the number but there's several thousand uh Coins out there because almost for every blockchain technology, there's an underlying coin to support it. Uh, So there's a you know, and there you're going to get once again, you're probably going to have something like a 90% plus failure rate. Um, So I think that uh, at a at a sort of a big picture level, I think it's a really exciting technology. I do think that people should be allocating probably 5% to maybe 10% of their portfolio to this in a in some kind of a diversified way. I haven't yet worked out myself how exactly to you know to do it, but I think the point is it's something that you shouldn't ignore and we should all try and educate ourselves on on actually what it means. What is the underlying technology? What's really going on here as opposed to the hype about, you know, people are trading Bitcoin and there's, you know, and there's sort of 15 year olds, you know, making a lot of money and potentially losing a lot of money. Uh, you know, I think that's the sideshow, but there's really, uh, I think, a, um, uh, a revolution taking place. That will be incredibly exciting. So, you know, even if it's not as an investor, just just we should all be a a little bit educated in, you know, what this technology is and what the potential is.
1: Yeah, it's a whole new world that one needs to immerse oneself in. If you now look ahead to 2022, one hopes that uh, Omicron or Omicron, depending on how you want to pronounce it, uh, is another another way that the Virus is mutating to eventually live with human beings and us to live with it. Uh, and if, if that were the case, would that not be make for a, well, certainly make for a more normal world, but would it make not make for a perhaps better economic uh, performance from this country and around the world in 2022? And how, how would you rate those chances?
4: I think the chances are are high. Um, I think it was today. There was a New York Times article. In fact, it was it was it was all about uh, fatigue. That you know, around the world, uh, people have got uh, COVID fatigue. You know, we're just tired of lockdowns. Uh, we're tired of uh, you know uh, social distancing, uh, being deprived of livelihoods, being deprived of entertainment, uh, human contact, et cetera. Uh, and what they were talking about was you know the politicians uh, have to sort of balance. Uh, you know, what, uh, what what, the politicians may believe is in the good in terms of lockdowns and uh, stringent uh, uh, regulations and controls versus the vast majority of the population that actually uh, have this fatigue and just want to get on with life, uh, not irresponsibly, you know, but 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 return to a more normal life. And I think what we're seeing with the Omicron uh, variant, uh, and, and we've seen this from... The kind of data that's emerging, it's, there's not enough data to be statistically significant, but I think there's enough of a data to form a reasonable opinion. And also anecdotally uh, is that, uh, you know, the infection rate is high, but the severity uh, of that is very low. Uh, and that's a really positive sign. So I think that uh, the combination of hopefully a less severe uh, virus and fatigue uh, and also a lot of the data that says that, uh, you know, we know who's vulnerable, uh, you know, lockdowns don't work, Uh, I think we will get back to a far more normal society. And that'll definitely, as you say, it'll definitely uh, result in confidence. It'll definitely result in opening up of borders of global travel, uh, less uh, pressure on supply chains, which is a very big issue globally. Uh, So that'll definitely be very good for the economy. And also in South Africa as a tourist destination, uh, you know, we'll be a big beneficiary of that.
1: So a better year ahead in 2022.
4: Well, it's always you know you've always got to separate the the kind of real economy how we live things versus the financial economy, you know. And it's been a really challenging financial economy for South Africans. Uh, look at the job losses. I mean, uh, unemployment rate is you know astronomical. Uh, there's been uh, I mean, even hard to comprehend the numbers. But what have we lost? Probably uh, two million jobs, I think, since COVID. So so it's been a really difficult year. We haven't you know we have travel restrictions. Uh, we don't watch sporting events live. Uh, it's been a really challenging year. I don't think it's been a good year uh, for a lot of people, let's say economically and socially. Uh, but if you look at the stock market, it's been a great year. You know, the returns are up over 20%. The currency has been relatively stable. Uh, so your financial returns have been good. Your real world returns haven't been good. I think next year, the, the real world uh, returns are going to be much better, um, you know, and hopefully the stock market in South Africa you know, can continue to perform because uh, you know, if there's a stronger domestic economy, then that'll definitely help the local stock market. I think globally, uh, stock markets won't do as well in 2022 20, uh, as they did in 2021.
1: Our UK correspondent, Linda von Tilburg, joins us with some good news, Linda.
5: Well, the good news is when the South Africa has been taken off the red list, what it exactly means for South Africans, I'm not sure. But if you have a British passport as well, you can go home without quarantining, which is good news for me. I've literally been stuck in Africa for six weeks. Well, stuck is probably not the right word. I'm in Cape Town and that's quite great. Yeah,
1: I it's the worst places in the world to be stuck in inverted commas if you think about it that way. But, uh, this red list, just explain that. Does it come a bit out of the blue or was it expected?
5: Well, it was actually expected. I've been watching the news and I preemptively um, booked a flight yesterday because I saw that ministers were also starting to say that it's not fair. And even Boris Johnson in a debate in parliament said that they need to change it. And uh, so we've been expecting it. I booked a flight while it was still quite cheap. So to be able to go back, that I can fly straight to the UK because I was planning to fly uh, via Switzerland or something and quarantine there. You would have to quarantine at home. But what it means for people who, you know, Brits who are going back or South Africans who might have dual nationality is they don't no longer have to hotel quarantine. You'll have to be at home and you'll be vigorously tested. Um, but it's just great. I mean, it's it saves you. It was 200 2,185 pounds to stay in a dreadful hotel, one of, near one of the airports. That's almost 50,000 rand. And that's gone now. That is really good news. We just need to check what it means for South Africans who might want to travel to the UK, whether South Africans are also off the river list. But the news flash that I saw is that South Africa is off the red list. So we'll just have to see what exactly it means.
1: I'm just trying to think about it for families who get together in South Africa, uh, relocated uh, countrymen of ours who perhaps like you are, are living elsewhere in the world. Now they can come here and go home, as you have just mentioned, even if you have to yeah. quarantine when you get back to the UK.
5: Yes, that's what it means. So people who thought, okay, I'm not coming because I know of people who wanted to come back to their families who didn't because they thought, oh, shucks, I'm going to be stuck here. And, you know, I can't go back to work in January or whatever. They can now come. So So, you know, we just have to see exactly. It's got to be vigorous testing. But that's what they should have done right from the beginning, you know, to put people like almost like prisoners into hotels. The EU didn't do that. And I've seen in cape Town i've run into i um, in the Somerset West area, and there's a lot of Germans here and first of all, their government sent a plane on the fifth of December to take a lot of them. And now but a lot of them just stayed because they said they can go back. They have to quarantine. That's fine. But I think the best, nice thing is South Africans can come back, you know, to their families that might be elsewhere in the world and that might be in the UK. And now they can fly back. You know, quarantining is not the end of the world. And it's cold in the UK. You might as well stay indoors anyway.
1: Yeah, well, I was thinking of that. There are not too many people from South Africa who'd be wanting to go to England for Christmas, but the the reverse traffic is uh, much much higher. Uh, and, sure. and oof, for the tourism sector, this is really good news.
5: Well, uh, let, let's hope there's more, more than that, because you know, Africa on the red list, or, or the the whole of Southern Africa, it's killed tourism. I mean, I've been walking around and just gobsmacked, and you know, I, I walk at the waterfront, and it's empty. I mean, when is the waterfront empty? You you go into these places, you go to the wine farms. I was at Verge. Far- and I was sitting there in a restaurant thinking, where are the people? So, you know, maybe this means that even Europeans, okay, we're not going to be stuck. Or Brits who actually want to come, they can go back. Because, you know, so the Brits love South Africa. I think 10% of, our, uh, of their tourism is South African tourism. So it, it might open that up. And I think that's what SATSA and FEDHASA has been waiting for.
1: So we just don't want our government uh, now to start playing around with lockdowns, for heaven's sake. But anyway, that's good news on the one side. The other thing that I wanted to just pick up with you, thanks to the kind sponsorship mm-hmm. of uh, Bright Rock, you are off to Davos yep. again this year. You, you 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 went two years ago uh, and covered it for yep. us brilliantly well, as you always do. And then last year, Thank you. Uh, there was nothing nothing going on last year.
5: Well, last year it was online, but I don't think me or you, none of us bothered to actually check in what what it was about because the conversation kind of moved on from what they were discussing. But I think this one is going to be interesting because this is planning for post-pandemic. I mean, even if we have this, you know, um, COVID sort of just dragging on, the, the world has to reopen. So it would be interesting to see what the world's going to do. And I think there would be nice, clear indications from Davos. And it'll be interesting to see who goes. I'm, I've, I haven't seen, you know, they quite, normally you know how long they normally plan ahead. This time I haven't seen itineraries. I haven't seen anything. I don't even know who's going from the South African government yet. So it, I think Davos would be interesting this year to see, you know, post-pandemic, because we need to start looking post-pandemic now.
1: Yeah, it was a bit of a last-minute thing, from what I can understand, mm. that they are actually having the World Economic Forum again this uh, well next year. Uh, but it's sure it's not even a it's a month away, Linda, and you're going to be back in the in the Alps, uh, freezing uh, cold mm. as it always is. But there's always a heck of a lot going on there, and the the agenda for the year uh, seems to be somehow come together when all these heavyweights are. Uh, in one spot
5: yeah let's see because you know you you know every time you go the ones you go and do there's always some big speaker um um, i know that greta thunberg was quite a big thing there when i was there and well trump was still there it was before he was out so it might be interesting to see whether the biden comes who comes and you know just sort of set an agenda and you know look at look at how we can Revive the world after this dreadful, dreadful pandemic, and you're right. It was kind of last minute, and I've never been. And I don't know if you've been ever been chased down by the media liaison of the World Economic Forum. I mean, they were all looking. Are you coming? Are you coming? So I think they sort of keen to quickly get it going, and it will be interesting. I mean, you've strutted around. It was it in your. First- Felskuhn that was <laughs> My
1: are brilliant, I'll have you know. If uh, a good old maid in Cape Town, uh, if you need to, well I, well I suppose it's not really ladylike for you, would it be?
5: I don't care about ladylike. I sort of went last time thinking I'm going to dress up and I was like, looked like a Yeti snowman every day. You know what it's like. You just eventually don't care. You just want to be warm.
1: But what is interesting, you mentioned Joe Biden. I saw Joe Biden in Davos A few years ago when he was still the uh, vice president to Obama and he really impressed me I really liked him and followed uh, his career since then I know he's been getting a real bad press from many people but I'll tell you something that I I like about uh, uh, what does he call himself middle class Joe uh, is that what he when he says he's going to do something, he actually follows through on it. And something that's gone completely under the radar is the way that Americans are now attacking corruption. Up until now, what used to be uh, it used to be one of the easiest countries in the world uh, for you to wash money through in the United States. We've seen HSBC get into trouble, Deutsche Bank get into trouble for this kind of thing. Yeah, and they've just passed laws this week. Which is going to stop that, and it's been motivated by Joe Biden and Janet Yellen, who's now the secretary of uh, what Treasury secretary. So, like their finance minister, I, it, it, that's going to be fascinating to see. That if if he doesn't make it, at least members of his administration on the route that they're following, because looking at the mass media nowadays, it's so hard to to make sense of so many conflicting reports.
5: I know. I agree with you because I, I, I think, um, well, I'm more a liberal at heart, So, but I, I think what he brought back is a bit of sanity. I mean, there's, there's so many conflicting outside views. This is sort of more the middle line. People think in America it might be left wing, but it's the middle line. And if you're talking about corruption, maybe they go after the Guptas because, you know, whenever you trade in, in dollars – the americans can go for you um so you know we should, we should hope they go for corruption and and, and go for it everywhere and, and root it down and root down the, the money that people can take out of the world because they normally use dollars. So, you know, we should definitely watch that spot, I think, the fact that they are getting much stronger on corruption.
1: Indeed. Well, Linda, I look forward to talking to you from Davos in early January. And, uh, again, delighted that you're going to be covering the World Economic Forum for business and the community uh, from the middle of, in fact, the highest town in Europe is Davos the the, the what this a ski resort most of the most of the winter.
5: Yeah, I think one of the things that was so interesting last year. I mean, you've got all these high flying people, and then there are these people who actually live in the town who don't really care about all this. And these ladies, they are eighty and they're still skiing, coming past you. I mean, it's just it's just such an incredible place.
1: There's a whole lot going on about Omicron and how serious or not it is and what it means for the world economy and our economy here in South Africa. Discovery Health introduced today its latest findings. Here's the chief executive of Discovery Health, Ryan Noach.
6: The data indicates that the severity of Omicron is 29% lower than what was experienced in the D614G wave, or the first wave here in South Africa of COVID-19 infections. Uh, This severity is encouraging, this reduction in severity, uh, though uh, there are certain confounding factors, which I'll explain later on, and this is early data, so we should not be lulled into any type of complacency. In terms of the vaccine effectiveness of the double dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech regime, the vaccine effectiveness has reduced from 80% in the Delta wave to 33% now in this Omicron wave against COVID-19 infection. Quite a material reduction. But the vaccines were developed to prevent severe illness and death. And what is very encouraging is that the vaccine effectiveness of this double dose of Pfizer-BioNTech holds at 70% in the Omicron wave against severe complications of COVID-19, which we measure by hospital admissions. So 70% vaccine effectiveness in mitigation of hospital admissions. What we do see is that the protective effect of prior infection in the previous waves of COVID-19 has reduced over time. And now in this Omicron period, we've seen further erosion of that protective effect. This could also be confounded, of course, by the durational effect of uh, waning antibodies since the prior infection. Children during this wave, as reported by the National Institute of Communicable Diseases here in South Africa, uh, seem to be at 20% greater risk of hospitalization during the wave. It's important, though, that I say they are experiencing very low test positivity rates relative to adults, and in absolute terms, the admission of children to hospital remains uh, very low. Uh, and so there is no reason to panic in this regard uh, uh, without question. Uh, The starting point is just for you to understand the origin of the data. Uh, In our role as a health insurance administrator, Discovery Health administers more than 3.7 million health insurance lives, and in respect of those lives has a unique data set that comprises Firstly, clinical data from electronic health records uh, going back uh, over an extensive longitudinal period. Secondly, wellness data from our wellness program within the Discovery Group, uh, Vitality. And thirdly, uh, vaccination data for members. And what this allows us to do is track, of course, the pathology results, understand which patients may be admitted to hospital, understand their acuity of care and also their underlying disease burden, and overlay this with their vaccination status and their wellness status, which gives us a range of important insights about the uh, members administered here at Discovery Health. So over the period of the last uh, 18 to 20 months of the COVID-19 pandemic here in South Africa, Discovery Health has had uh, extensive tracking and codifying of COVID-19. It's important for me to just quantify the exposure that we've had. During this period, Discovery Health has recorded 2.6 million tests for members, of which now approximating 500,000 have tested positive. That's resulted in about 61,000 admissions to hospital hospitalizations. Tragically, a terrible 14,400-odd deaths during the period. Uh, And the members administered by Discovery Health have received about 2.7 million doses of vaccine. So this is an analysis at scale over an extended period of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, It is a microcosm of the national data, but has tracked the national data and approximated the national data very closely. At the moment, uh, we are experiencing the fourth wave of COVID-19. There is a steep trajectory of new cases of COVID-19 driven by this Omicron variant. Week to week, there has been a rapid and steep increase in the number of infections with a very high concentration uh, of the attack rate of new infections per 100,000 lives per day. Quite a different shape and trajectory to the other three waves Uh, if you measure from days from the start of the wave, um, and clearly a different pattern of contagion and infectivity. This is likely a highly transmissible variant, uh, causing rapid community spread, as has been reported. The Omicron variant is now dominating infections and is responsible now for more than 90% of infections in South Africa, displacing the Delta variant that drove the previous wave and the, the recent infections up to the advent of Omicron here in South Africa. So uh, thanks to, and together with our colleagues from the MediClinic Hospital Group um, and Intercare, a group of primary care facilities, uh, we have gathered consensus anecdotal evidence uh, from the healthcare professionals treating patients on the ground and in the hospitals. And there is a very clear nuanced difference Uh, in the clinical presentation of these Omicron cases. From an out-of-hospital perspective, all clinicians are reporting higher reinfections of previously positive cases, multiple breakthrough infections in the vaccinated cases, seems to present after a shorter incubation period of three to four days. It's uh, described as a milder illness with recovery within about three days, the most common early symptom seems to be a scratchy or sore throat, similar to the other waves. The typical other features include this nasal congestion, a dry cough, and there's a characteristic feature which is recurrently reported to healthcare professionals, and that is myalgia, but manifesting particularly in lower back pain, which seems to be a hallmark in the out of hospital presentation of this variant. From an admissions perspective, the clinicians in hospital tell us that the majority of hospitalised patients are unvaccinated, and this is supported by the data. There are uh, a higher number of hospitalizations uh, where the, the primary reason for admission is a non-COVID-related admission, yet COVID is discovered as an incidental finding, and we are informed by scientists in the Department of Health in South Africa that up to 80% In in some hospitals of children admitted to hospital for non-COVID-19 cases are testing COVID-19 positive coincidentally. Uh, There is definitely anecdote of less respiratory distress on presentation. The data supports that a proportion of the high care and ICU admissions are lower with fewer patients requiring continuous non-invasive oxygen and ventilation support. The uh, hypoxic patients requiring oxygen tend to be the unvaccinated ones, um, and 16% of current ICU admissions in the med clinic facilities are unvaccinated. The trajectory of admissions as a proxy for severe disease does not follow that steep infections trajectory. So there seems to be a flatter trajectory of hospital admissions, potentially indicating lower severity at this early stage. I must say this is early in the Omicron wave, and therefore we must exercise caution in interpreting these uh, severity findings. If you measure the hospital admissions per thousand infections across the four waves, the Omicron admissions standing at 38 per thousand infections are the lowest of the four waves um, and a third of what we experienced during the Delta wave.
1: Here's the thesis. Mr. Market is panicking in the United States because inflation has hit a 39-year peak. A year ago, the monthly increase in inflation in America was 0.2%. It's now at 0.8%, four times higher. There are two schools of thoughts on this. The one school of thought says that the expansion of uh, money, the creation of money out of thin air by the Federal Reserve initially It began when there was an attempt to overcome the global financial crisis. More recently, it's been creation of money to help the American economy overcome COVID. That is one of the reasons for it, and it's endemic. It's in the system, the inflation bulls believe, and as a consequence, inflation is going a lot higher. The inflation bears say this is temporary. And leading that group is Kathy Wood of the ARC funds, uh, who reckons that what we really need to be looking at is the massive innovation that is happening in the world through companies that have been exponential companies that are taking advantage of the seismic shift in the world, which has been enabled by technology. And that innovation is deflationary. In other words, as you get More technology coming in, you become more productive, and as a result of that, it costs you less money. Just take BizNews as an example. We use something called Xero, which is actually a stock that's in our portfolio. We love it so much. If it weren't for Xero, we would probably have three people full-time in our accounts team. Now we have an outsourced accounting uh, service. So it, because of using zero, there wasn't zero around in the, in the old days. There were other things, but they were nothing as good as zero. So as you get this improvement in productivity, what it does is it massively reduces costs, which is deflationary. But why is inflation going up? The uh, inflation bears I believe that the reaction to COVID is temporary. And as a consequence of that, once COVID works its way out of the system, Inflation will come back to where it has been for the last 30, uh, almost 40 years because it'll be driven lower by increased productivity. So inflation bulls think differently. So is Mr. Market right? Because there's been some significant falls in prices of exponential companies in the last few months. But is Mr. Market right? The bond market tells us probably not. If the 6.8% inflation that we saw... In November was going to continue into the future. You would expect the interest rates, looking ten years ahead, would be six point eight percent or more, or at least four percent or five percent. They're sitting at one and a half percent. So that's the first clue. The second clue is: Are we sitting right in the middle of Omicron or Omicron, depending on how you want to pronounce it? From the research that. Uh, that I've done, and from the smart people who've explained this to me, among them, the chief executive of Netcare, Dr. Richard Friedland, who I'd urge you to go and watch that interview on YouTube on BizNews TV that I did with him yesterday. Uh, he was explaining to me in that discussion exactly what's going on in Netcare hospitals. In South Africa, we are already on new infections which are above that of the third wave. So if you look back there, the first wave was July, August 2020. The second wave, December, January 2021. The third wave, June, July. That's when I got COVID, June, July uh, 2021. And now this wave, this current wave of infection is already beyond that. And it's it's likely to go higher still. Why? Because Omicron is much more uh, infectious than Delta, which was the third wave, or Beta, which was the second wave, or the original covid Nineteen virus. Okay, so that we get. But what's critical about this is what is the impact of this on society? In other words are many more people going to die? Are the hospitals going to be clogged up? And what is useful here is that South Africa is the epicenter of Omicron right here in South Africa and other parts of the world are now starting to feel the same effects. So we can read from South Africa what how this variant is likely to affect us. And if you look there, the first wave was surpassed in deaths in South Africa by the second wave, but the mortality of the third wave was already less, and that is uh, that variant, and that was the Delta variant. And look at what's happening now in this wave. There's virtually no increase in deaths. Now, it is true that uh, there's a delayed effect, but by now, if we were going to see significant increases in deaths, given that this... Uh, has been around omicron has been around with us november the 14th was where it first started for a month already then we would be seeing it in the numbers already it's not the case now put this into the into your database and thinking from an investor's point of view as an investor if there is another outbreak of covid-19 that is going to cause lockdowns and hurt the economy then it's going to hurt your investments or hurt the companies If the next uh, wave of COVID-19 follows the traditional pattern of viruses, which is that they learn to live with human beings rather than killing them, or the human body learns to live with the viruses, then the normality will return sooner. And as a consequence of that, the impact on the economy will be less. So I hope you're getting this too. You're unpacking it correctly. I think the data definitely points to that, Alec. Um, Another interesting point on this is in my circle, I'm sure everyone else has these WhatsApp
3: groups. Um, In the first one, two, and three waves, there was a lot more fear and uh, heartbreak, I think, in those groups, whereas people now seem a bit more less concerned with
1: with how they've been impacted by COVID themselves. So I think the stats point to the reality
0: in a lot of people's uh, cases as well.
1: And it's critical that we understand this from an investment point of view, because if COVID is behind us or if the worst is behind us, then the future is a lot brighter than many people are anticipating. The interview with Richard Friedland, and in a nutshell, what he says, 470 people are in net care hospitals. Remember, it's a 10,000-bed hospital group. 470 people were COVID patients are in the hospitals around the country. That compares with over 3,000 in the third wave. But more important than that, 90% roughly of the people who are in hospital, who've been hospitalized for COVID-19, are not on oxygen. They are breathing just normal or room air. And that is a massive change from virtually 100% of people who were on oxygen in the third wave. Now, what Dr. Friedland said, and, and this makes a lot of sense to me, he said, when you follow what happened with the Spanish flu of 1918, it didn't disappear because they found some vaccination or some special medicine. It disappeared because the virus mutated and became less and less hurtful to human beings, which, if you think of it, viruses are pretty clever. So they want to live with the humans as well. They don't want to kill everybody that they go into. And that should be, if you're looking at it rationally, the same kind of a process that COVID-19 will be following and right now, what's happening with Omicron is suggesting that that's the case. Now, from an investor's perspective, remember we, right in the epicenter here in South Africa, we can see these things before the rest of the world sees it. They're going to all get Omicron. Everybody is, it's, it's like, well, it's going all over the world and it's, you're going to have these infections. As it becomes evident elsewhere in the world, there will be a reaction by Mr. Market. That's important. I want you to just, I'm just going to read this. I hate doing this uh, usually in presentations, but this is so relevant that I'm going to read it because Kathy Wood has been the star fund manager. Uh, She's the one who's actually called the whole fourth industrial revolution uh, far better than anybody else. And had I been listening to her, then those who invested in the other portfolio would be making even more money because we wouldn't have sold Tesla, which is her biggest stock. But anyway, she says, In Ark's view, inflation fears have been overblown and are likely to give way to the risks of deflation, thanks to both the base effect of collapsing prices during the Corona uh, crisis late last year and to supply chain bottlenecks that could be causing businesses to double and triple order supplies this year. Inventories have been building, perhaps not in stores or on dealer lots, but in households and garages. And when that starts coming through the system, when you're sitting on a heck of a lot of inventories in your households, then you stop buying then the deflationary effect starts coming back in again. And technology, which improves productivity, which improves the efficiencies of economies, are naturally deflationary. So that's her thesis, and it just makes a lot of sense to me. She's talking a book, of course, because she sees this change in the world of the fourth industrial revolution as being well-entrenched and developing into the future. She also says that the counter argument is amongst the people who are pushing chief executives into quarter artists, where they're buying back shares and just trying to push up the share price uh, in the short term, but not thinking about the impact of this massive transformation into the long term. Well, thanks for being with us today, and we look forward to being back in your company tomorrow, same time, same place. Uh, from the Business News team. Until then, cheerio.